jump right into it very soon. I just wanted to briefly introduce the school. This is the Institute of World Politics. Most of you here, uh, at least on my account, are new. I want to welcome you. My name is Kevin Dunn. I'm a public outreach and events coordinator here at the school. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about who we are, we are a graduate school of national security and statecraft who focuses on teaching the next generation of aspiring leaders in the field of national security and policy. Um, we have a wonderful admissions team. We have great alumni, some of whom are actually here today. If you have any further questions about that, I will refer you to them. Um, I'm sure they will be pleased to assist. I wanted to briefly introduce today's speaker, Mr. Dan Evans, of, uh, excuse me, Mr. Dan Evans of Storm King Analytics. He brings with him a distinguished record of service in the military. He has also taught at West Point, and today he will present to us on the power of what he terms, if I'm quoting it correctly, smart data. And I am very keen on listening to more of this, and I don't doubt that you all are as well. So without further ado, I want to open it up to you, sir. Thank you so much. And the floor is yours. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Uh, so just real quick, is it okay if I step away from the podium with the, the camera? Or yeah, that's fine. Better? Mm -hmm. okay. uh, first, thanks for having me. Uh, just a series of stories. And I'm just going to tell some stories. I got some pictures. And uh, we'll kind of see where it goes. So it could be interactive if you choose. If you just want to listen, that's fine as well. Uh, so just some quick background. So as mentioned, I was on the faculty at West Point. I was an active duty officer. Uh, and I was fortunate to get involved with an organization called the Network Science Center at West Point. So it's a research center. Uh, one of my good friends uh, was kind of the, the, you know, the, the founder. He, he brought me on board as a co-founder. Uh, without any, I didn't have any knowledge of network analysis besides a couple of kind of Kevin Bacon kind of things. Uh, he brought me on board really because he knew I could manage a new organization. So I got brought on to a brand new organization. We set it up, we got it up and running, uh, but kind of through the whims of government bureaucracy, I had to be a researcher to kind of be in my position. So I had to learn about network analysis and based off of my previous background and based off of our sponsor's interest, uh, you know, there was a lot of interest in moving beyond the traditional social network analysis and moving into other areas where this type of math could apply. So what ended up happening was the sponsor said, hey, we're really interested in economic networks. So I said, okay, that sounds interesting. I taught economics. I don't really know where this is going, but I had taught a class on markets. So I reached out to a friend of mine who had recently retired from the army. He was working at Standard Poor's. I went down and visited him. I uh, talked about their challenges, and he looked at me and said, our biggest challenge right now are frontier markets. So I said, okay, that's interesting. So let me look a little bit about frontier markets, and then I also kind of went through my mental Rolodex, and interestingly, uh, the guy who I reached out to is in the back, Tim Mitchell, Colonel Tim Mitchell, who at the time was the defense attache in Dar es Salaam. And uh, I said, I'm coming to Tanzania, we're gonna learn about capital markets and frontier markets. So uh, this has been a really interesting journey. It, I mean, that was almost eight years ago. Uh, so it's expanded in another weird kind of government bureaucracy way. Because it was a new center, we were stuck in this bureaucracy trying to figure out how to make things happen. I never became a government employee, which was fortunate for me 
because now a lot of the ideas that generated at the research center have spun out into the commercial side. So I actually have a company now. It's a very small core group. We have mostly a really amazing group of, of uh, kind of a, a network, if you will, of technical experts. And uh, we do some really cool stuff for the government. And we started to move on the commercial side. Uh, most of our recent work right now is looking at business intelligence and market entry and frontier markets. So that's kind of where, where I got to where I am. Uh, and I'm really excited about what this math can do in other types of situations. So that's what we're really talking about. And like I said, it'll be stories. You know, so we'll talk about the title of this talk was, was really along the lines of perfecting your ground game, smart data, not big data. So we all know all the talk about big data. And uh, you know, there's a lot of pretty amazing things you can do with big data. But I'm gonna tell a story that really just kind of these are the light bulbs that went off in my head over kind of this eight-year journey, if you will, uh, where I have some concerns about totally relying on big data. Okay, so there's my first, oh, okay. Does anyone know what that picture is? Okay, it's Mars. It was from the, the Viking orbiter, I believe, in the 70s, right? So what did everyone all, all of a sudden say when they saw that picture? Man, there must have been pyramids on Mars. And I love conspiracy theories, right? So uh, I'm all in, right? So uh, that's really interesting. So, but we'll, we'll revisit this, okay? Interesting about face on Mars. Okay, so these are some of the insights that I've kind of come across. And I'll kind of walk my way through this on the story. Uh, first off, I submit that big data can be dangerous. Uh, and then the second one that jumped out at me is, how can we improve our ground game? And we'll get to that. All right, so back to the story. So kind of the story I told. The Dar you know, did you know there was a Dar es Salaam Stock Exchange? Uh, it's pretty sleepy, as you might imagine. Not a whole lot going on there. Uh, and that's a whole other story. But what we found, and this is one of my former students, now Captain Josh Lospinoso, Rhodes Scholar, pretty amazing young man. Uh, what we found in a place like Dar es Salaam, what makes you important is hard to distinguish from the outside. So what gives you influence? So we'll go a little bit further. So we spent time in places like Dar. Here's another place. This is Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. So this is a really interesting tech incubator that's on the campus, uh, the Ethiopian campus of architecture, uh, building and construction. So you can see it's a kind of a cool cutting edge Incubator made out of you know, repurposed connexes, uh, so interesting things. We spent a lot of time on the continent doing those types of things. This is us in Hive Collab, one of my colleagues, Dr. Charles Thomas, uh, spending time talking to entrepreneurs in a lot of these projects. You know, so as we started to work on these other academic projects, these light bulbs started to go off. So what are those light bulbs? Oh, the light bulb went off here. Okay, so has, is it anyone here? No one's Af from Africa, like lived on the continent, South Africa or anything? Okay, sometimes people notice. This is the Accra Mall. Did anyone know there was a mall in Accra? Accra, Ghana? It's a pretty nice mall. Uh, this particular establishment in the Accra Mall is called Rhapsodies. So anyone who may have spent some time on the continent, Rhapsodies is a South African chain. So it's, a, it's a kind of a steakhouse, nice steaks, good drinks. 
uh, and it becomes kind of a nightclub. So on one of my trips in Accra, when we were looking at the financial networks around Accra, I met a bunch of investment bankers. Uh, and we had lunch, and then they said, why don't you come out for drinks with us? So I said, oh, this would be a great opportunity. So I go out for drinks, and we spend multiple, multiple, multiple hours there in this Rhapsodies in the Accra Mall. And literally, you know, from a group of five, it grew to a group of 30, you know, kind of late 20s, early 30s, mostly men. And they were hugging each other, you know, and greeting each other like long-lost brothers. And I was trying to figure out, and I finally grabbed one of the guys I knew and said, how do you all know each other? This is amazing. And he said, they're my mates. And I said, okay, I get it, but wh you know, what is it? And this was the answer. This is a school in Cape Coast, Ghana called Infantism, probably butchering that. Uh, Ghana, former British colony, has British education model. And there are a couple of boarding schools, about seven or eight, that are amazingly influential. So you go to the school, and the connections you make there are your connections for life. There's another really famous school on the north side of Accra called, I think it's Achimoto, where if you look at the political elite in Ghana, a huge amount of them all went to this school. They know each other. You know, so it's very similar to kind of uh, you know, some of the things you might see in, in Great Britain. So the light bulb went off in my head. Or New England prep schools. It could be. I would argue probably less so now than it used to be, but if I looked at the 19th century, yes. Maybe even early 20th century. All right, so there's my, there's, I'm gonna shift gears, different story. So over the last uh, two years or so, I was working on a project at a garden spot here called Camp Lamonier in Djibouti. Uh, Looks like that. It's a really nice place. Sits alongside the uh, Djibouti International Airport strip, right on, uh, what's it on the other side of the Red Sea? Gulf of something, right? Across from Yemen. Gulf of Aden, maybe? All right, so it's a beautiful place. A whole bunch of uh, anyone who's been in the military, you know, clues. Maybe, I don't know. There's not a whole lot uh, to, to really see there. You know, it's a big, dusty, you know, huge port. Uh, so I spent a lot of time there. And I was actually working with a group there that was trying to figure out where they should spend their time with partnership building in the region. And they were struggling. So we were trying to help them with a little bit of a, a quantitative approach to help them kind of frame the problem. But one day, I sat down with one of the Intel analysts, and he was operating, uh, you know, I'll pick on this company, well, I, maybe I won't say the company. He was using a platform of a very large, trendy company out of Palo Alto, California, and uh, that does really cool things with data. And, uh, but, and I, I won't just pick on them because I saw it as well with uh, using the D6A platform as well. So what was this Intel analyst doing? He was pulling data from everywhere in the world into this really cool machine that was spitting out stuff on the other side. And I asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm pulling in a lot of data. And I said, what are you trying to find? He goes, I don't know. It's going to tell me on the other side what I'm trying to find. And a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, wow. 
All right, so back to my big data story. So that picture is the same picture as the one we looked at on the right at a different time with a different set of lighting conditions. So what is it really? It's just a big mound of rocks or something, right? Humans naturally want to see patterns, especially if it looks human-like. So really, that, was just, that thing on the lower right is just a quirk based off of shadows and the way things were falling. Yes. One of the reasons why in light, uh, like plugs, I'm sorry, the, uh, like electrical outlets? plugs, you tend to look at it and you might oh, associate a face with a face. Yeah. And we also want to see patterns. You know, there's a lot of trendy guys like Taleb and, you know, mathematicians that, that say, look, we're always looking for patterns. And one of the challenges with big data, if I pull enough data in, I'm going to get a pattern. You know, is that pattern meaningful? I don't know. Next story. Okay, I'm shifting gears to the third story. So I have a friend, uh, one of my lieutenant buddies, who's the CEO of a really interesting company now called Fantex. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. You can buy shares in a pro athlete, uh, and they trade a kind of on a pseudo stock exchange. So and they're positioned in interesting ways. I think they're trying to say they're a, a uh, you know, they don't correlate with anything. Uh, a whole nother story, but also the idea is that if you buy a share of a potential Michael Jordan or LeBron James, you know, so these guys are giving up a, a portion of their current earnings, you know, so anyway, they're getting stuff now for later is basically what they're doing. So I had a long talk with them. I'll show them what I was working on. He's a really smart guy. He's a very successful entrepreneur, uh, and he gave me some really good feedback. And one of the things he pointed out, what I'm going to show you, is he's the CEO of a well-known company in San Francisco. And he tells me he gets calls all day long from people trying to sell him something. And his, his comment to people is, especially if it's something like an HR or supply chain or something, he's like, I'm about to hang up on you, you didn't do your homework. I don't make those decisions. The CEO doesn't make those decisions. So, uh, a lot, kind of a light bulb went off. I was discussing this in some of the other work we've been doing on the network side. I said, man, this is it. So I'm going to use a bit of a military analogy. If I'm in a military organization and I want to know who's really influential in that organization, who is it? My argument is it's probably the supply clerk, right? Who's making decisions that might really apply? Sometimes I say the first sergeant's driver as well. I mean, who really knows what's going on? You know, it's typically not the company commander or the first sergeant. There's someone in that organization who's really making decisions that would apply in that particular thing. Okay, so I just kind of told three convoluted stories. This is kind of how I wrapped them up. These were the lessons learned as I kind of, you know, walked around and saw this. Uh, the relationships that result in someone being influential are not always apparent. This goes back to the, the Ghana story, and I find this again and again and again. Uh, begin with the end in mind. I know that's Stephen Covey's second habit, but I think it applies to intelligence as well. You know, if we're trying to do something, well, what's the question we're trying to answer before I pull in data from a million sources and hopefully find an answer? You know, why don't we formulate a question and then see what data would be relevant to that? Uh, and then the other one, you know, the person in charge isn't always the one who gets to decide the outcome, which is kind of interesting as well. Okay, so I'll shift gears and I'm going to go into two 
recent projects that we worked on that demonstrate this. So the first one's gonna be kind of a, a more traditional micro look at influence. So this was a project we did recently. So the gentleman on the left is the King of Morocco, King Mohammed, uh, and the lady on his right is his wife, Princess Salma. Uh, so Princess Salma, her interests are, uh, are, are, are cancer and cancer screening. So she has a big foundation. Uh, most of her focus is on women's cancer screening, specifically, mostly cervical cancer is kind of what her foundation focuses on. So I was introduced to a company out in uh, Fremont, California that has this really amazing cervical cancer screening technology. I mean, it's leaps and bounds ahead of anything that people are doing now. I mean, the pap smear is 150-year-old technology. It's not very accurate. Yeah, I learned so much about that more than I ever thought. Uh, so the problem is they have this great technology uh, here in the U.S. to get something like that on the market is they were laying out for me. It's just incredibly hard. The FDA makes it really challenging. All of the competition are doing everything they can to kind of thwart their efforts. So their thought was, we know of this foundation that's focused on women's cancer screening. Maybe we can get our product bought by the foundation. We can get a lot of great success stories out of it and it'll help us when we try to go into more developed markets. So they came to me and said, who do we need to know in Morocco in order to kind of get this thing up and running? So we said, oh, this is a really interesting problem. We'd like to get at it. So interesting point. So as we started looking around and going, okay, Morocco, how are we going to figure out who's important in this particular sector in Morocco? Uh, we started to look at King Muhammad and trying to figure out who he was. And one of the interesting things we found was that there is a secondary school. Secondary school is a trend here in this uh, in Rabat, in the palace, called the Collège Royal. So the royal family's children go to a special secondary school. And as we started to look at it, I noticed as we started to kind of dig through some of the names that are around the king, that some of them also went to the Collège Royal. So we started to go, oh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and what we found was, we started to dig through, and we found four themes that we submit in Morocco cause someone to be influential in this particular sector. Uh, you know, the, the royal family, I mean, it, it's a kingdom, so it's pretty, you know, they, they pull a lot of weight. Uh, interestingly as well, the, the royal family has a holding company that owns large pieces of the most prominent Moroccan companies. I have this Collège Royale, and then I have a political party. So we dug into that, and what we really found was uh, and it kind of made sense. If you're king, who are you going to trust in your inner circle? Well, I'm probably going to trust people who I know that are, are fairly well educated and maybe even people I grew up with. And as we started to dig around, there were a lot of people that had gone to the school with the royal family. So what we did then was we mapped them. And we mapped them how they, and we did a little, there's a little bit of more complicated math behind this. But we, we tried to determine these relationships, and then we looked at how people were connected through the relationships, which gives us a, a cool little map here. And you can see, oops, what did I just do? You know, you, obviously this guy jumps out. Let me get my laser pointer. Anyway, the guy in the middle. Uh, that's really interesting. 
So who is this guy? That's him. So this guy is part, he's not in the inner circle of the royal family, but he's part of the royal family. He's also a MD, oncologist, and he's involved in the foundation. And he's involved with the main cancer research center in Morocco. So is this a guy we might want to know? Probably. Is this a guy who would pop up on our radar initially as a guy we might want to know? Maybe not. You know, once again, you know, if we're looking around the head of the foundation, uh, so what we helped them do was we, we did a kind of a roadmap. And actually we have some interesting metrics that we've come up with to kind of weight people based off of their importance. Uh, and if you look back at this particular network, uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of different ways to look at people in a social network. You know, the argument may be that somebody in the very center here is influential, and they are, but they're influ influential in a different way, not just mathematically, but just really in a role, if you will, than somebody who is sitting right here. Exactly. Travel information and or prospects both ways. Sure. And actually, I meant to mention as well, we colored these by this kind of a mathematical idea of, of subgroups within a larger network. So we just ran an algorithm on there just to kind of figure out. So you can see there's kind of four main groups. The, all the people in the upper left-hand corner are prominent doctors that are involved in cancer research. You know, so that's the connection. Uh, the... Uh, I believe the light green are mostly, no, the blue are mostly royal family. It's kind of a mix, but we could kind of pull out those groups. It's not totally clean, like the four ways we pulled it out, but it kind of gives you a sense that there are separate groups within that larger group. He connects the other subgroups. And, and remember, so I, I came to this as a new person. So in a, in a weird way, you know, so uh, I, I hope I bring a, kind of a bit of a fresh, fresh lens to it. So, and I'll show you. So one of the things that I came up with was this idea that I could map these people on a grid, if you will. So uh, along the bottom is that idea that I'm a node that's in the center of a lot of, of people. And we've actually tweaked it a little bit. We're taking not into account exactly where it sits in the network, but how connected we are to other people that are central to the network. So kind of a, it encompasses one degree away, if you will. And then the, on the uh, y-axis there is how much you are a connector. So that's a person that bridges between other groups. And the way you calculate that is you figure out every single path possible between all pairs of nodes in the network. And whoever falls along the highest number of those paths is that high connector. Uh, so, but what we did was we mapped it out and we kind of have four quadrants. People in the lower left-hand corner, I call them peripheral players. Not that important. That's the noise in the data. With a much larger data set than this particular one, there's a lot more people in that lower left-hand quadrant. The people in the upper right-hand quadrant are above average in influence and in that connector idea. You know, so interestingly, so our connector guy, you can see he's right there. Uh, you know, he's, he's well above all the others, and he's, you know, he's a little below average on his influence. Uh, 
but what this allows them to do is we basically took that network and we, shown a, we, we, we shined a spotlight on it and we said, out of all these people, these are the important people and we can tell you why they're important. So uh, that's what we're working on with that particular piece. All right, I'm gonna shift gears. So that was one where of more traditional social network analysis. But what we did was we drilled down into the culture of that particular environment and figured out what caused people to have those influential connections. I'm actually going to Zimbabwe with Tim Mitchell in the back in two weeks. And uh, we are looking at similar types of things on a project for the US government. And in previous work we had done in Zimbabwe, the thing that really caused people to have influence are, are different. Uh, one of them, it's a very clan-centric environment, more so than maybe some other places in Africa. Uh, there's actually clans within tribes that break down even further. Uh, and then there's some interest, you know, there's still a lot of, you know, it's kind of a, a pseudo one-party rule, not quite. But you know, the, so once you start to look and drill down a little bit deeper, that's when we start to make the connections. So we're doing some work on the inner circle of Mugabe. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any others that jump out that were even a little interesting. We did some work in Ethiopia where the overriding theme of influence, if you could trace your family back to which militia they worked with during the most recent revolution, you could kind of map out the influence in the Ethiopian government. Okay, so I'm gonna shift gears now. So that was more of a traditional social network analysis. Uh, this is another project we're actually working on right now for a group in the Pentagon uh, looking at ungoverned spaces. And so the idea of can, can we un understand ungoverned spaces if a US military, military commander was inserted into an ungoverned space for anything, you know, even a humanitarian assistance operation, or even we're gonna look at, in Liberia this summer, looking at the Ebola response group uh, in Liberia. Can we develop a map that allows a commander to understand the situation on the ground, and then kind of point them in the direction of where they should focus their efforts? So we'll talk a little bit about this. So one of our proxies for one of the initial phases of this project was we started to look at southwestern Libya. So after the fall of Gaddafi, uh, especially southwestern Libya, it became a total wild west. You know, there's, and we'll talk a little bit about all the groups that are involved. You know, but right now there's a lot of arms moving south and a lot of people moving north. You know, and they're moving all through land that looks like this. This is Sabha in southwestern Libya. Actually, when I look at the pictures, I mean, it's like out of Bojess, right? I mean, it's pretty cool. I mean, they got these huge old castles that sit up on these hills. Uh, you know, it's kind of arid, really interesting oasises. And right now it's kind of a wild west. So we started to dig into this on our ungoverned spaces idea. Uh, and also the French are in Niger watching this. And I always like to pull, that's a really cool French fort. I mean, that is out of Bojess, I think. And they always look good in pictures too. <laughs> the French foreign legion guys always look good, man. Uh, so they're on the border in Niger, but even this fort, I think it's called Fort Matama. I mean, it's a huge area of land they're trying to cover, you know, and there's something like 20 miles off the border even at that place, you know, so you can imagine just what's going on there. Okay, so now in southwestern Libya, there are three groups that have basically, that are, are both competing against each other 
in some cases cooperating with each other. And within these three groups, they've basically broken down into smaller militias that are kind of geographically based. Every town set up their own militia. You know, there's, there's no central government that's really controlling anything. So it's an interesting mix of just lots of things going on. So this is one of the groups, and I'm not sure I get it right. These are Tubus, which is an ethnic group in that area. And then I have the Touregs, and most people know Touareg from the Volkswagen. Uh, so, and they're actually known as pretty fierce fighters. I think they're Morocco as well. Uh, and then you also have the traditional Arab tribes as well. So you have three groups of people that have all four militias. And like I said, there's this weird mix of competition, collaboration. So we decided we were going to look at that. And one of the analysts that works with me, uh, she, she's really brilliant. She's got a lot of experience in Africa. Uh, and she's worked for some interesting organizations. And we took a deep dive into this. And we really dug into it. And she mapped out all these militias. And she started to look at what types of causes they either agreed upon or disagreed upon. Uh, she was able to dig down into even like, you know, fighting about certain oil fields. So we started to kind of look at these militias. So for instance, here is the Tubu network. So these are some of the militias. And what we did was we, we looked at, like I said, common causes. And we were able to map, this is a fairly what you would call a full network. You know, so there's a lot of connectivity in this network. So they're all connected in some particular way. Uh, we colored them as well by the subgroups. And what we did in this particular case is, is uh, the, the links between the nodes are weighted a little bit thicker if there were multiple connections that were called kind of in a positive way. So we have the Tubus. There's the Touregs, not as many militias, a little bit of a different interesting look. And then we had the Arab tribes. So these are the militias within the Arab tribes. So that's interesting. So here's our problem. As we really started to dig into it, we go, okay. So we're kind of mapping these allegiances and we kind of understand what they have. When we mapped it out, what we really created was something that kind of looks like this, if you will. You know, so we have layers of networks that are not only connected horizontally, if you will, but vertically. And the mathematicians on my team, that's hard. You know, and so, but we really think that's what most accurately describes what's going on on the ground. So we did a similar uh, piece of work like this in northern Nigeria, looking at a, a, one of the Nigerian states, Kalkano. Uh, we also did a project like this for the people in Djibouti, not looking at this type of situation, but really more of an inward look, looking at the people that they interact with every day. So you can imagine there's an international organization layer, there's a US layer, there's a partnership country layer, you know, to try to help the commander better understand what these interactions look like. So how do we make heads or tails of this? Like I said, that's hard. Uh, luckily, one of the guys on my team, he's, he's really brilliant. He's a Oxford PhD. Uh, he's been doing networks for a long time. And he came up with this really cool idea. And everybody loves heat maps. So what he basically did was he took this network and through kind of a series of interesting algorithms, smashed it down into a single layer. But in order to do that, because uh, kind of mathematically, he had to spin the networks as well through 360 degrees to get them to align up just right. It's actually pretty cool. 
So, but basically what the, when the smoke clears, you get a series of heat maps. So this is one of the, the experiments that we ran. So basically, a heat map on the left and the one on the right are two different scenarios. So our thought was, you're a US commander, you're being told you're gonna go into, let's say, Bamako, Mali, there's a humanitarian assistance. Uh, this is your heat map. This is a type A. We think a type A is unstable. Maybe the one on the right is a type B and that's what we wanna go towards. So mathematically, we can actually, we have an algorithm that we've developed that gives that commander a series of moves, if you will, to get from type A to type B. You know, so the idea that you need to make sure that the relationship between these two organizations is stronger, uh, or you need to spend more time with a particular group or person in this particular network. So we've given them kind of a, a series of moves and this, kind of, this came out of some of the work we had done with the folks in Djibouti. We were trying to figure out how to, where the CG is to spend his time. So what we're working on now, and, and this is some of the work that we're doing in Zimbabwe, is any time that you intervene in a network, networks are living, breathing things, that network is going to react to your intervention. Uh, kind of a, just a quick war story. I mean. Uh, a, a good friend of mine, and this has been a long time ago now, it's probably over 10 years ago, he was a deputy brigade commander in Baghdad, uh, and he was involved with a lot of contract awarding for things like who's taking the garbage away, you know, who's doing this. And uh, he, he, tells, he told me this story one night that uh, I think it was a, a garbage removal contract. So they awarded it to a particular company, and the very next day, the number of IEDs increased in an insane amount for several days. And he said that usually, I think, you know, once a week, he would kind of do the rounds with the local sheikhs and kind of catch up what was going on. And he said one of the guys looked at him and said, wow, the IEDs have really gone up this week, haven't they? You know, my friend said, yes. And the sheikh said, it's business, it's not personal. And he said a light bulb went off in his head. You know, he, he was studying the wrong things. He should have been watching The Godfather. You know, he, he was, his thought was, you know, how dumb were we? We should have known that when we awarded this contract to this particular company, there was a particular group that had, you know, some financial interest in this company. There were other groups in our area that would be angry about it. It was a lucrative contract. So that, that, that story always stuck in my head. So when we started to, this idea of poking at networks, the story came back. So one of the, the things that we're actually doing now for that, that group in the Pentagon as well right now is we're looking at ways to forecast how that network might react to an intervention in the network. So what we're going to be working on in Zimbabwe is uh, we're actually looking at historical data where networks were disrupted in some way and to see how that network reacted and then try to see if the models we're developing can get close to what happened in real life. I mean, real life is hard, right? It's, it's not an experiment, you know, and there's so many other factors, but uh, th there's a kind of a complicated mathematical concept called exponential random graph models. So it's this idea that uh, networks tend to have a living, breathing trajectory of their own. And I'm probably, I'll, I'll oversimplify, but let's say they have a natural trajectory. And if you poke it to try to get it to where you want it to be, it's almost like a reversion to the mean. It's gonna to wanna to try to get back to that in these uh, exponential random graph models, 
pull in some stochastic, some probability about where networks are going. You know, and with today's computing, we can run a lot of sims. That's uh, for our study, yes. Okay. But uh, it, get, it can get much more complicated. And in some cases, for our academic study, we're going to have to make some simplifying assumptions. But obviously, it can be much more difficult, right? Because there's things that happen internally as well. But the, the, the model's trying to take that into account as well. Sure. Sure. One of the things we found in one of our first simulations, fairly simple one, was if you poke a network and try to push it in a direction, if you don't continually poke it, it's trying to get back to where it wanted to go. It kind of makes sense, right? right. You know, it's kind of, I'm sure it's, there's some physics principle. We, we joke, you know, I think, uh, I think in fluid dynamics there's this thing called the Chatelier's principle. You know, if you, if you poke a balloon, it's going to push out in another area, that's kind of a simple term. So we kind of use that as an analogy. It's probably not totally, I probably wouldn't pass if I were going to. Right now, yes. Yeah, we try, and that's one of the things we try to keep totally on the unclassed side because it just gets, it makes things much more complicated. And then also, you know, some of this work is being done at West Point and there's not a classified facility up there. Okay, yeah, they, they keep saying they're going to have a skiff, but there's not. And it just makes things much more complicated. And so we're staying open source right now. And actually, mostly open source is rich enough to, to get to the math that we want to do. And what's my end state? Just for instance, let's talk this Libya heat map. What are you giving me for an end state? So, yes, recommended moves on, in a chessboard, if you will. So if you go back to here, oops. So imagine those are strings. I'm going to tell you which strings to pull, poke which nodes to push to eliminate. Uh, and I'm going to tell you how that thing reacts to my recommendations. And what I'm going to get you is on the road from A to B. Okay, and have you actually, basically, like doing those node pushings or whatever, you're actually constraining me? Like basically, I have this much of an effort. Where can I best use that? Yeah, so uh, the initial model that we ran for the team in Djibouti was, uh, you know, out of 100% of effort, we gave you like your top five moves and the percentage of your 100% you should do on those. So it might be spend 50% of your time making sure that the relationship between these two organizations is good. This is where we're going next. Uh, you know, this, this slide, you know, a lot of people kind of poo-poo it. Uh, and I don't know if anyone's seen, actually I should have pulled it up. They just did a similar one for Donald Trump's, uh, President Trump's business. It's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, and a lot of people, you know, this was on the front page of New York Times and everyone was like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. And actually when you really dig into it, it's brilliant. But what they're missing is there's no math behind it. So we're actually looking at taking this. It sounds like social scientists. <laughs> But, but the brilliant thing is, if we install some filters and we start to weight importance based off of commanders, what you can do here is you can start to do the same thing I just described. You can say, in order to get to state B, 
you know, maybe we focus more on outside support to insurgent factions. You know, it's a, it's a way to kind of slice and dice that. Because if you really dig into it, I'm, it's pretty amazing what they did, you know, but it's, it's just hard to digest it in one view. And I've actually seen a presentation, I tried to find it, and I couldn't find it for this, where a guy was able to turn on and off portions of this based off of a filter. It was really, really powerful. But if you can imagine what I just described in Libya, I believe can be done on problems like this. So this African one that you're working on now, that's a government contract, is that correct? That one is. And who's applying for that? Uh, the Army Studies Program. Okay. You know, so we're a mix. So right now, most of our revenue is coming from government work. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm really excited about kind of like that Morocco project. Uh, I've started to do some work in South Africa for a client. And uh, I'm on a phone call tomorrow with some people that are interested in some North Africa work. That was my question. Is the private application of something like this um, coming here today and representing the African development forum that's happening in Nigeria okay. on the 24th this month? Sure. So that's what interested in you guys put together. Um, so cool. So, what we're doing for these clients, you know, there's two different approaches, there's three different actually. Uh, for businesses that are looking to enter, we're identifying this is your engagement plan. These are the people you need to know, this is why you need to know them. Uh, what I'm doing for another company is, is there's some resistance to them entering the market. We've mapped the resistance. So kind of give them some strategic moves about who they should maybe co-opt, you know, maybe ways to isolate certain people. Uh, and then I've had some recent interest from uh, people in the private equity world that want to use this for due diligence, you know, because I, I was working with a hedge fund and one of the problems they had was they only invest in frontier markets and they were kind of overlooking simple things like in Central Asia, is this company connected strongly to kind of the ruling family? Well, that's probably even a bigger piece than looking at any financial documents, right? You know, that's what's gonna kind of make it. And they were doing some stuff in uh, South Vietnam and they were really, or in South Vietnam, in Vietnam, and they were worried about, you know, who these people actually were. Uh, so there's, there, that's kind of an area where we think there's a lot of interest. And I'm working with uh, another company up in Connecticut that does some um, data. They provide data for institutional investors. And uh, there's some really interesting things we can do for deal flow. We're, we're actually doing a project now where we're mapping uh, the private equity investment in East Africa, you know, and then starting to look at, they have these co-investment clusters, if you will. You know, so the idea that certain private equity firms kind of herd mentality, uh, so there's a lot of interesting things that we're starting to pull out of it. So actually, I'm probably more excited about that uh, just because uh, the government work is great and, and I feel like we're making a, a difference. But uh, just from a, a new and growing business perspective, they just make it really hard, you know, getting contracts through, you know. Is anybody from USAID or DOS uh, I've, I've spoken with some people at state, uh, CSOP which uh, I forgot the, the director, Kim Field's old directorate. And I'd spoken with some USAID, uh, but I haven't gotten the traction I want. And actually we are at a point now where we're really, uh, it, it's a very small group. So we're stretched pretty thin. There's a lot, it's good, but uh, we're really at this point now we're starting to bring on some more people to kind of really uh, get into the marketing and kind of get our stuff out there. That's a great question. Uh, right now, uh, th there are a couple small firms. 
there's a there's a firm uh, based here in DC and New York called Ergo, uh, but it's a small privately held company. I don't really know what they're providing beyond what their marketing says. I don't know if their math is as in depth as ours. I don't think it is. Uh, there's another friend of mine that runs an interesting company in Frankfurt doing similar work. We've actually talked about partnering on some things. Uh, he's, he's well connected in the European financial circles, uh, but his math isn't as, as deep as mine. Uh, and then I also look, yeah, you know, honestly, I've, I've given this pitch to certain audiences that Palantir is my competition. You know, that we, we, we're spending a lot more time on the front end. Palantir doesn't care about the front end you know, the, the quality data. They do an amazing job of, of slicing and dicing data, but I think what we do differently is, is we spend a lot of time on the front end, and that's why I'm hiring subject matter experts to kind of get this really nice mix of qualitative and quantitative data. You mean kind of the front end being high-quality data? Data, yes. Yeah, because even, you know, when I was working with S&P, you know, they have Cap IQ. I've been talking to Thomson Reuters. If you look at their data that's available on the financial side, it's mostly outdated and missing in this, these parts of the world, you know, and uh, we've, we've demonstrated that you can build a pretty good data set on, uh, you know, in about, with, with the right group of people in a couple of days. And the, the actual, the technology, you know, kind of running the math, that's, a, that's kind of the easy part. You know, the algorithms exist, you know, it's getting the data proper, in a proper format and getting it right. And then what's really one of the struggles we found as well is then what's almost more important is the presentation layer, right? So how do I say this is important to a CEO or you know, a fund manager? Uh, and, and I would argue that Palantir does a horrible job of that. You know, Palantir typically comes with a, an FSA, right? A field service agent or whatever. So got, it comes with a person to run the box. Uh, because no one, no one can figure it out. And they cost about 300K a year. I think the license for Palantir DOD first year is about two mil. I mean, it's, it's a nice business they got going on. And I mean, I'm not saying it does, it does great stuff, but the guys I saw using it were probably using 5% of its capability because they just, it's, it's hard. You know, and so when they, when they do a demo at a trade show, it's pretty amazing. But the guy's been doing it for 10 years, you know, he's making things. Uh, so they don't care. Well, their strength is, is they can pull from insane data, you know, data sources and get it organized. Uh, one of the guys working with me, so actually, one of the things as an aside, what we're working on now, so the way this work goes now, I call it the, you know, depending on who I'm talking to, I got a minimal viable product, which is, all, is manual. So I spend time collecting the data. Once I get it, you know, a quality data set, then I put it through some code, and then on the back end of the code, I now need to build a presentation layer. So the way I do that right now is, is we just do it manually. Uh, you know, it's just like getting a regression out of Excel. You know, if you put that table in front of a CEO, he's gonna say, get that out of here, I don't know what that means. Tell me what that means. Uh, so that's what we're working on. So what, uh, out of frustration, uh, a friend of mine has started to build an actual piece of software for our use. And what we want to be able to do is, is turn the data on so the data is live at all times. And then it's software as a service, because I'll, I'll diverge a little bit here. So uh, 
One of the guys I met along in this interesting journey uh, used to work for a consulting firm in London called Africa Practice that does business intel market entry work. Uh, and I sat down with them and I watched what they were doing and I was like, this is kind of like a grad school project is what they're doing. You know, they send a team of four people into whatever country, they interview a whole bunch of people and they write a hundred page report with pretty charts and they hand it back. And I said, well, is there any kind of math like this type of stuff? He's like, no. So I showed him what I was working on and his eyes lit up. And, and actually interestingly, at that time he had left the company and started his own private equity firm focusing on Nigeria. And uh, he looked at me and he said, I want that. And I was like, well, tell me what that is. He said, I want to be able to tell one of my analysts, you know, hey, we're, we're interested in a particular investment in this region of Nigeria and this particular sector. Come back and tell me who all the key players are. And if you can do that in 10 minutes, that's a bonus. Because right now it takes him a month to get that information back. And I told him we could do it. And he's like, I want that. You know, so I thought, of, you know, long story. He's a, he's a great guy. His firm is struggling. He's not going to pay me to, to develop this thing. So, but we started to work on it. I have a friend, uh, another recent uh, military retiree, PhD in computer science, who started to build that prototype. We were working together. Uh, and we have some ideas about how we can keep the data updated uh, with you know, some of the advances in, in databases, especially with graph databases. You can do some really interesting stuff. So with the idea that it's always accurate and you know, it's got alerts if something drastic changes in the network that we can send alerts out to the customers. So you have to maintain the current data yes. in case somebody dies or a new guy shows up. Yes. Who underwrites you? Who owns you? Who funds you? That sort of thing. <laughs> uh, uh, it's just a small group. Right now I'm the majority owner. Not yet. No, no, no. I've, I've actually started last week. I gave my first pitch on that idea to uh, a group of people just to kind of sense. I, I, I didn't want to go get funding. I wanted to do it. I thought we could do it internally, you know, because what we really do is, is we do kind of traditional consulting engagements right now, mostly research work with the U.S. government because that's where I came from. Uh, so like I said we started to do some commercial, uh, but I, I really wasn't getting enough the contracts weren't flowing in fast enough to set aside enough money to get this where I wanted. So that's why I started talking to investors about it. I would think any multinational company, you know, a global for, Fortune 500, you know, who wants to do a project in New Guinea or, you know, Malaysia or something, would be all over this. Actually, I have a conversation tomorrow with a general counsel from a Fortune 500 company uh, who, uh, they, they have some concerns about their distribution centers in, uh, the Middle East and North Africa, about who's actually involved. Well, I mean, you know, all these companies, when you get an administration to change over, they all swoop in and hire the people that are leading because they're party laws. And they'll put uh, somebody from the National Security Council in charge of Southwest Asia so he can maintain the relationships so they can look for oil. And to me, it'd be a lot easier to have this. Maybe you have a guy like that. Too, sure. You, you want to have this sort well, of Well, with our experiment from open source, we can get about 75% accuracy, we think, around there. Yeah, I mean, I would say from looking at down to the social network, that much harder. But kind of the organizational level, we can get that. You know, but like for instance, on this private equity thing that we're doing, 
every single member of these private equity firms have a full LinkedIn page. All of their company websites have CVs on every single key person. I mean, it's, it's out there. So in, especially in the frontier market areas, uh, that's where the relationships really... So another competitor, there's a company called Relationship Science in New York City. Uh, but I, I think they went the wrong way. So it was a guy from Cap IQ who was really well known and he walked out of Cap IQ with already $10 million of seed funding and he's trying to map Wall Street. And, uh, and they're having challenges. One of the big problems they had was they went to India and they hired a whole bunch of data analysts. So these are the people that are scrubbing the LinkedIn pages. And I've also been speaking with AI companies because I had some people tell me they could automate my data collection. And what I found was you really need a somewhat wise human who understands what they're looking at to make these connections. The AI is not there yet. You know, and even you know, someone from a different culture, it's tough. So some of the work we do in Africa, uh, we did a Zimbabwe project a while ago. I ran a check by a native Zimbabwean who gave me some great insights that we had missed. We think that, so kind of our model is, we can get about 75% open source, and then what that does is it gives us targeted questions to do an on the ground visit with our, you know, kind of our data collection team. Uh, and then we've also talked recently, there's two different options. Uh, we haven't gotten this far, but in the future is to have some journalists on retainer to kind of go ahead and just call and, hey, what do you think about this? And actually, uh, my friend, the computer scientist, uh, knows more about it. But I don't know if anyone knows about, you know, Amazon's Mechanical Turk. Familiar with? So Amazon has a service where people can piecemeal work out online. So what we could theoretically do, and there are some companies doing this with SMS in West Africa now with data collection, like, hey, how many uh, houses have electricity in a particular town? And they pay people on the ground to walk around and SMS the information back. You can do this online with Amazon Mechanical Turk as well and pay pennies for pieces of information. Uh, so that was an interesting, you know, kind of a crowdsource. Uh, we thought it was a pretty cool idea. We I'm, that's just in the future. We haven't gotten that far. But that's another way to kind of fill in the gaps. You know, but when I've spoken to people at state on, on some of our government work, uh, you know, like we, we did a, a project years ago where I had two West Point cadets actually were the major data collectors. It was a government project. Uh, so basically I said, look, we're going to Ethiopia. You're going to spend four days in this room over here. Uh, we're going to brief the embassy staff on economic development in Ethiopia and who all the key players are based off of this kind of technique. You know, so they just basically, they, they dug through all kinds of stuff. They built a model. We went over to the embassy, we presented it to the, uh, you know, kind of the, the polyecon staff in the embassy. And they said, well, we kind of already know that. And I went, good, that's what we want to hear. So they did a pretty good job not knowing anything about Ethiopia besides doing their own research. You know, two smart young guys. Uh, but they were, they were pretty on target with what they came up with. So we're optimistic about that. Any other questions? Wow, well, I appreciate it. It was a good session. Appreciate your comments. Uh, right now, the Hudson Valley, upstate New York. Yeah, so I left West Point. Yeah, yeah, I live just on the other side. Actually, so the name Storm King. North. Well, actually, so Storm King is the mountain 
that I live on, Storm King Mountain, which is just in the Hudson Valley. And, uh, but we, based off of recent events, uh, we're likely gonna have a presence in Manhattan sometime this spring. We're, we're, we're linking up with uh, an interesting vet group called Bunker Labs. And uh, we're gonna probably occupy some space in the New York office. No, that's what you're saying. I know of them. Uh, I, I've been introduced many times to Aaron Simpson, and uh, but we've never made the connection. I don't spend enough time here in DC. Yeah, probably, probably <laughs> but that, that's another, they're another group. I don't quite know what they're doing. Okay. There's another group in Toronto that's doing a lot of culling social media stuff, yeah. We're doing some of that work as well, but... Uh, I think a lot of people are doing that, but building patterns, I mean, in my mind, I just started a relatively new job back in the government, and uh, what we deal with, complex disaster stuff, there's some merit proper decisions on So we're actually working on a project now as well with, with DITRA, uh, looking at a framework where, actually, interestingly, the framework's starting to look a lot like that. You know, so they're concerned about something that happens in some part of the world. What's the cascade effect through these interrelated ideas? Uh, so instead of looking at people organizations, we're looking at kind of concepts within frameworks. And actually, as we started to build our model on that one, uh, there's one of the layers is, is civil, and there are social networks that are nested under the civil layer. Well, thanks so much. If you have any more questions, I'm around. I'm not going anywhere for a little while, unless you're going to kick me out. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you.